If you have a Bible, I'd like to ask you to turn to Psalm 37. If you don't, the, the words of this psalm, or the part we'll be looking at, is printed in these orders of service, which you picked up coming in. If you could interview a person, if you only had one person and you wanted to ask them about, to tell uh, you their philosophy about life, how do you deal with, with struggles and disappointments and hopes and dreams, would you rather ask a 25-year-old or a 75-year-old? Would you rather ask someone who's um, just beginning to face a lot of life's challenges or someone who's, who's been through a lot? Probably the older person for a question like that. If I wanted to know how to program my cell phone, I'd ask the 25-year-old. Psalm 37 is written by an old King David. Uh, we typically, I typically visualize David as, as a young man uh, fighting Goliath, uh, the soldier David, the shepherd David. Yet this, these words are, are written, this psalm is written late in his life when he's looking back, when he's accumulated lots of wisdom from his own mistakes. Hear these familiar words from Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. And finally, verse 11, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The main theme of this psalm is, is found in those opening two verses. God does not want you or me or anyone to fret because of evildoers. To, to fret there means to, to be agitated, to get heated, and not to be so, so worked up. We can become upset when we evaluate life just as the way we see it now. And there may be godless people that seem to be noted, quoted, and promoted, and they have wealth, and they have power, and they have the numbers. And we look at this and we say, it does not pay to serve God. The reason he says not to fret or worry when we see that it's because you cannot evaluate life just as a snapshot in the present. We have to look to the end. And so he says about them, they will wither, in verse 2, wither like grass. Grass that looks so healthy in, in the mornings at certain times of the year, and yet the sun comes out and it dries up. Or like green plants, when they are cut down, quickly uh, dry up. And, and they don't look the same. And that's what he's saying. We, we cannot evaluate life just for the moment. We have to look ahead. We have to look to the end. So what are we to do? He gives us four key ideas, you might say, four main commands, you might even mention. First is, verse 3, God wants you to trust him. 
Trust him. Instead of being envious or, or angry or fearful or intimidated or sad that the godless exist and prosper and seem happy and even persecute you, he says instead of that, confide in God. Leave things up to him. If you can trust in God to work out the final details, then you need not worry about them yourself. But why don't we trust God more? If you've been a Christian any amount of time, if you've read the Bible, you, you know that it's a basic thing that we are to trust God. And yet, why does something that would seem so straightforward, why is it so difficult? One writer said, well, either we see God as too small, that God does not have the power or the wisdom or the inclination to help me so I don't trust him in those things, or we see to God as too big, it is uh, overall and aloof, that why would a God so, so big that could create all that is care about the details of my life? And yet, he doesn't tell us that because he is large and we are small. He tells us to trust him because we're made in his image and he, we have value in his sight. So first of all, rather than fretting or being anxious about the present, trust in God. Secondly, he wants you to delight in him. God has created you and me and all people with this marvelous capacity to delight in things. Uh, maybe a, a favorite meal, maybe a favorite activity or a favorite person or a favorite book or whatever it might be that you experience something and you delight in it. Maybe a possession, something that's new and it, it fulfills your desires for the moment. Uh, sometimes things we delight in, we did not delight in before. But if you're deprived of those, you find delight in that thing. Uh, uh, when I was confined to my house a few weeks ago after surgery, I, I was in, indoors for like five straight days. And I was like, I've got to get outside. And I uh, finally, the day came, and I just went for a walk uh, up and down our, our neighborhood. And oh, how delightful it was just to stand in the sun, just to see beyond uh, the four walls uh, of a house, but to see into the distance. Now, if I did that every day, I wouldn't say it's delightful by the, by the second or third day. But God's given us a capacity so that when we de are deprived of things, when we finally experience them, they can be delightful. Well, here he takes that concept and says we are to delight ourselves in him. It brings pleasure. As some have said, to delight in the Lord is to find happiness in God, in his being, in his perfections, in his friendship, in his love. Rather than running from God, rather than being fearful in a bad way from God, do we delight in him? John Piper, probably, that's been a keynote of his ministry for so many years in one of his books, The Dangerous Duty of Delight. He writes, the world tries to satisfy the internal longings we have with scenic vacations, accomplishments of creativity, stunning cinematic productions, sexual exploits, sports extravaganzas, hallucinogenic drugs, ascetic rigors, but the longing remains. What does this mean? And C.S. Lewis answered in that well-known quotation, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation 
is that I was made for another world. You see, in the same way that God has created you with a capacity to find delight in certain things and experiences, he has made you, he has hardwired you where those things cannot bring ultimate satisfaction. You can find momentary or even perhaps days or weeks of delight, but it will not last. Is that a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. He's made you where you can only find ultimate satisfaction in Him. So the fact that the satisfaction and delight wears off with the temporary tells you He's made me for another place. He has made me so that I cannot be ultimately satisfied with the new thing, the new experience, the new person. It's just momentary. And so it's a reminder that, Lord, you have created me with this God-shaped vacuum, as they've said, that only you can fill. And David is saying here, fill it with God. Delight yourself in the Lord. And look at the result of that in verse 4. Probably one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. As you do so, he will give you the desires of your heart. It doesn't mean that whatever you desire, he will give you. You may desire something that's would not be good for you or anyone else. But as you delight in him, he changes your very desires to where you desire things that he wants for you. As a brand new Christian, I vividly remember the most remarkable change that took place in my life was a desire to read this. This to me was printed boredom and confusion before. And when I came to know Christ, it not only began to make sense, but I had a desire to learn and read it. Now, that may not sound like a very big deal to most people. That was a revolutionary change of desires in my life, I can promise you. And I'm the only one there was there to see it. So as we delight in him, he gives us the desires of our heart. Let me quote something from one of my mentors who's gone to be with the Lord, David Nicholas. God wants you to get to know him. As you get to know him, you will learn to love him. As you learn to love him, you will learn to trust him. As you learn to trust him, then you will learn to obey him. If you don't obey him, it's because you don't love him. And if you don't love him, it's because you don't trust him. And if you don't trust him, it's because you don't know him. Are you delighting in God? So he wants you to trust in him. He wants you to delight in him. And third, as it says in verse 5, he wants you to commit your way to him. What does this mean? We may think, well, here are my plans. I want to commit these to you, Lord. Literally, literally this means to roll your burden onto God. We say, what does that, what does that have to do with commit? Imagine you're carrying these, this backpack, and it's filled with... Uh, plans and worries and hopes and dreams and God says I want you to roll that I want you to take it off your shoulders and put it onto me it's the exact same meaning that we have in first Peter that says humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you 
The, the wording in Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord, is the same phrase from Peter that says, cast all your anxiety upon the Lord. So there may be uh, plans for the future. There may be anxiety about the past, uh, an unknown future, uh, whatever it may be. And it's tempting to think, well, the Lord doesn't care about that. The Lord doesn't care about these, the minutia of my life. And yet, what does he do? He invites you to cast that, to roll that upon him. And look at the fantastic promise that goes with it in verse 6. That he will cause your right, bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. The light of the noonday sun is the brightest. That is when the sun is at its peak, so to speak. And we all shine with his character. Martin Luther commenting on this very thought of casting our burdens upon him or committing our way to him and then he will cause your righteousness to shine forth like the noonday sun. He said, when we come to Christ, we are married to him by faith. Like a bride, we give him all we have, namely all of our sin. And he gives us all he has, namely his righteousness. Imagine a woman a single woman in her 30s. And life has been hard to her. Life has been hard because of the way people have treated her, and life has been hard because of some very bad decisions she has made. And she is lonely, and she is alone, and she has acquired enormous debts. Some that were forced on her, others unwise decisions, but now this this single woman with very little income has almost a million dollars in debts. And she cannot pay them. There's no hope of paying them. She develops a friendship with a man. And their friendship blossoms into love. And he makes a proposal of marriage to her. And she says, I would love to be married to you, but you know, must know this about me. I am in a million dollars of debt. If we marry, then that debt becomes yours. And he says, I want to marry you. And so, the, so the day of their wedding takes place. She's here in the front, and he's here, and they are married before God and these witnesses. And after the wedding, now that they are husband and wife, he said, I want you to know something. I have paid all of your debts. The million dollars you owe to various places, institutions, and so forth, they're all paid. All, you are debt-free. And secondly, your meager checking account, I put $100,000 into that account right before this wedding. That is a picture that Martin Luther said of when we come to faith in Christ. We are his bride. He's the groom. And he takes your unpayable debt of sin and crimes against God, and he says, I'm paying for it. I'm taking that certificate of debt, it says in Ephesians, and I'm nailing it to the cross, paid in full, and then I'm putting into your account my righteousness, my perfect obedience in all things. Isn't that wonderful? Is that good news? I don't know if you're smiling behind those masks or not, but I'm, I'm smiling. That's great news. 
The righteousness that shines forth is not our personal righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ in us when we come to know him. So that's the third thing, that we are to commit our way to the Lord. So trust in him, delight in him, commit to him, and finally, he wants you to be still and wait for him. Verses 7 through 11. I won't read it now. But we're to be still and wait for him. No one likes to wait. You don't like to wait. I don't like to wait. I was reading a... uh, a psychology magazine and it had the psychology of waiting more from a business standpoint and these were some of the observations anxiety and worry makes waiting seem longer if you're worried about what's going to happen when the wait is over it just makes the wait seem longer than it normally would uncertain waits are longer than known waits and they gave the example if you are uh, Say, a, a, if you're waiting in a doctor's office and you look at your watch and you were supposed to be seen 15 minutes ago, 20 minutes ago, and if, uh, if one of the staff comes out and says, look, I'm sorry, there's been an emergency, the doctor's going to see you in 45 minutes, then you go, oh, okay. And the wait seems easier then because there's a certainty about it and you know why you're having to wait. The third observation they said is the more... <laughs> This one, I like this one. The more valuable the service, the longer the customer will wait. And here's the example they give. In the old days, pre-COVID, airplane, you're at the gate at the airport, and you're waiting to board the airplane. Everybody's patient. They arrive an hour and a half early. They're charging their phones. They're looking at the news on the television. They're, they're, everybody's just waiting. And they're eager for the, the plane to get there. So after all that waiting and lining up, on the plane, then the plane lands, and what happens the moment it lands? Out of the seats, in the aisles, not even, barely at the gate yet. And you can't go anywhere. You're just standing there in the aisle. They said, the value's over with. It was worth waiting for in the gate because the value would be the flight. But now that the flight's over, you don't say, I don't, I don't have one more second I want to give to this. This is, this is all done. And last of all, I mentioned... Waiting alone seems longer than waiting with a group. There's comfort in knowing that other people are having to wait just like you are. Well, what does spiritually this mean? To wait means to be still. To wait means to be silent, but it is an expectant waiting. It is not a dread. It is not worrying what's going to happen when the wait is over. It recognizes the value it's expectantly waiting on God. And the Bible's filled with examples. Just quick, just a few. Noah. Noah endured the insults of his neighbors and, and derision and perhaps, perhaps even his own doubts as he spent over 100 years building that boat before the rain came. Abraham, at age 75, left a prosperous land at God's command and moved around for over 100 years while he and his wife Sarah waited for the birth of a child. Joseph, sold by his brothers, endures roughly 13 years in an Egyptian prison cell for a crime he did not commit, and yet he was waiting on God, and he trusted in God's control. Moses, the well-educated adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, at age 40, he, he kills an Egyptian and then flees for his life, and he spends the next 40 years in the wilderness preparing, not knowing he was preparing for what God had for him next. Paul, I love this one, 
sets out to destroy Christianity by persecuting Christians. He's miraculously converted to Christianity. And many people think, well, at that very point, he, he began his ministry. No, three years. Three years, God removes him to train him and to teach him and to, to disciple him is what we would say, to establish him in the faith and prepare him to be a missionary around the Mediterranean world. So waiting on God in the Christian life seems to be the rule more than the exception. If there's the red light of waiting, if there's the green light of going, it seems like most of the Christian life is lived at the red light in some fashion or form. We're waiting, and ultimately we're waiting for Christ's return. That's why the Apostle Paul in Philippians says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior. Eagerly wait. So every day as we go about what we're doing, every day as we make decisions and carry out actions and relate to people, we are waiting ultimately for that time, for that place where we are citizens and we are going there. I close with this. And you probably read it before. It's a well-known well example from nature. But there is a unique plant which grows in Malaysia. And it's called a Chinese bamboo tree. You can look it up. Not now, please. And it has uh, an extraordinary growth pattern. Uh, here's what's so extraordinary about it. Uh, you plant the seed in a mound of dirt, and you water it, and you fertilize it, and you go away. And one year later, you come back, and you water it, and you fertilize it, and you go away. Another year passes, you come back, nothing has broken the ground, you water it, you fertilize it, and you go away. Fourth year, you come back, water it, fertilize it, and you go away. The fifth year you come back, you water it and fertilize it, and you go away. But this time, over the next 90 days, it grows 90 feet. Taller than this ceiling. 90 feet in 90 days. Well, what was happening in year one, in year two, in year three? What was happening those first five years? Nothing? Was it just a seed dormant in the, plant, in the ground? No. It was developing a root system. The roots were going out, the roots were going down, all preparing to support the structure of when it came out of the ground. As you and I are waiting on a thousand different things, we may think nothing is happening, nothing is being accomplished. Lord, where are you? Why is my dream of this not coming about? Why are these plans I think you want me to fulfill not happening? Maybe he's sinking the roots deep and wide, preparing for what he's going to do. So trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord and wait for the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are worthy. You are so worthy of our trust. You are worthy of taking the burdens from us so that we roll those onto you and commit them to you. You are very worthy of our delight. And we know from experience that the things of this life do not ultimately satisfy. As great as they are, good things you've given us. Relationships, uh, marriage, food, clothing, housing, the rain, health, 
Those are good things, and we do want to thank you. But we recognize they cannot ultimately satisfy us because you have made us to be satisfied only with you. And thank you that you, des- you take our sin upon you through trust in Christ. You place upon us the righteousness of Christ. I pray for our brothers and sisters, those here today that, that maybe are, have been waiting a long, long time, that they'd be encouraged and that you would make yourself known to them in a very, very powerful way. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.